This is David Shirley from Irish Funds. So this is our final podcast for 2020 and is a recording of a panel discussion which took place on the 21st of October during the Irish Funds online annual conference. The panel is entitled ESG, The Prevailing Wind in Asset Management and is introduced and moderated by Tara O'Reilly, a partner with Arthur Cox and who's also a member of the Irish Funds ESG Working Group. And the panel features Fung Lee Chan from FTSE Russell, Charlie Carnegie from Arasig Partners and Emma Jane Joyce from the NTMA. Thanks for for listening and check back in early 2021 for more great content. Uh, delighted to be here this afternoon. I'd like to welcome everybody to this session. Uh, we're here to talk about ESG investing and I'm joined by a panel of experts uh, who've been in this space for some time so they can share the wisdom of that past experience with you and look at the changes in recent times. So let me ask them to introduce themselves. And I think as I look across the virtual panel, uh, Fong Yi, you might be the first person there. Sure. Thanks, Tara. Um, hi, everyone. Um, my name is Fong Yi, and I'm a director within FTSE Russell's uh, Sustainable Investment Product Team. Um, and within that uh, role, I work a lot with clients who are thinking about how to integrate ESG considerations into their portfolios. Thanks, Fong Yi. Uh, Charlie? Hi, yeah, good afternoon. Um, thank you very much for having me. Uh, my name is Charlie Carnegie, and I work for an independent investment manager called Arasag Partners. Uh, Arasag has been running since 1996, uh, and we invest around four billion US dollars across the emerging markets. Um, I've been with the firm for about seven years, and I head up the sustainability research. Thank you, and Emma Jane. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Emma Jane Joyce. I'm an investment director with the Ireland Strategic Investment Fund, where I'm head of sustainable and responsible investment and really a responsibility, I suppose, for the development of our strategy and the implementation of that strategy across all our investments. Great. Thank you. And looking forward to our discussion. Before we start, we thought it'd be useful to just get some initial views on what you as the audience see as the greatest challenge to ESG investing. We did open the poll at the beginning. So haven't voted yet you might do that now and, and while you do we thought we might set just a little bit of a backdrop to this discussion um, ESG investing aims to look beyond traditional financial metrics it might previously have been considered a niche area of investment but it has become much more mainstream in recent times as the general awareness of ESG issues developed investors have directed more of their capital with these issues in mind but we're now seeing policy drivers in her recent State of the Nation, the EU Commission president focused on matters relating to ESG. We know the EU is seeking to be the first carbon neutral continent. And in her presentation, that target was accelerated with increased emissions reduction targets set for 2030. That transition though needs to be paid for and less than 30% of the estimated costs will be provided by climate related funding. So as a result, we're also seeing policy initiatives that are aimed at redirecting capital flows into sustainable investments as a way to finance the balance. And this has led, as Olga referenced, to a significant package of legislative measures that require changes in risk integration, adverse impact considerations, and enhanced disclosures around sustainability that many of you will be working on at the moment and developing your understanding of the challenges in ESG investing. So let's take a look at the poll result and see what you are telling us you think is the biggest challenge. And we're seeing a, a clear winner in terms of data, uh, followed closely or not by investor expect, 
expectations and dealing with the policy changes. So I think we'll see in this discussion whether our panel agrees with, with that outcome. Um, so maybe, Charlie, let's start with you. We, we see investor expectation as one of the possible challenges and certainly high up there on the poll results. As a manager who's seeing more investors coming into this space and having been involved in ESG investing for some time, what do clients expect of you with regards to ESG and has this evolved more recently? Sure, yeah, and I think it's a, it's a really uh, interesting and important question because ultimately, you know, we as investment managers um, you know, are tasked with you know, stewarding the capital on behalf of, of, of asset owners and ultimately their beneficiaries. So you know, we are, um, you know, we are you know, beholden to them and their, and their demands. So I think what, what, what happens there is really, really important. I mean, if I reflect on kind of the beginning of Aristate Partners, we, we, invent, we started life in the late 1990s in, in emerging Asia, looking at small cap companies, uh, which was really a wild west uh, type of market. Um, and we learned the hard way, frankly, that developing robust uh, and systematic approach to governance uh, was, was the only way to survive in that market. So, you know, building a reputation around uh, corporate governance assessment back then was key to keeping, you know, our assets and keeping investors uh, on our side at that point in time. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, we fast forward two decades. Uh, expectations from investors have, have changed significantly and they've increased significantly, uh, and in particular around the environmental and social pillars. Um, you know, when we think about uh, our client base, we uh, invest money on behalf of a, a range of large, long-term-minded US and European institutions. Uh, and obviously they uh, are typically uh, very focused around the sort of world in which uh, they are leaving behind for their beneficiaries. Uh, and so, again, naturally, these sort of questions become uh, quite front of, uh, front of mind for them. Um, and I think now where we are today uh, is really, you know, we don't get a due diligence questionnaire uh, that does not include uh, ESG uh, questions within it. Um, you know, and that has changed in the last few years. Um, and so now we're getting much more probing questions on behalf of these uh, asset owners as to how we are actively incorporating ESG in our investment process. And, and ultimately we have to have uh, sound uh, answers to that if we are gonna to continue uh, to receive assets. So I think there's a real rising tide there uh, that, is, that is really, really important. Um, I think another element that we're seeing is, is investors looking for uh, specific mandates with regards to ESG and, and whether it be to reflect their values or a certain set of criteria that they uh, believe matter for their beneficiaries. Uh, and that comes, for example, in the form of exclusion lists. So, uh, you know, not allowing uh, their managers to invest in weapons or fossil fuels. So I think that trend is growing uh, significantly from what we see. Uh, and I think another really important area is, is around climate. So I think climate change is probably the topic that uh, our investors kind of uh, have, have formed a consensus around uh, of all the kind of the ESG topics. Um, and we've seen quite a few of our investors now uh, sign up to um, what some of the audience may have, may have already read about, but is the Net Zero uh, Asset Owners Alliance. And that is a group of investors who have committed within their portfolios uh, to decarbonizing them in line with the net zero uh, carbon world by 2050. Uh, and obviously that in turn is putting pressures on managers such as ourselves to play our role in, in delivering that. So on the climate front, again, we're seeing a lot more emphasis around uh, what we as managers are doing uh, to drive that uh, agenda and outcome. And I think the very final point I'd make is really around um, 
you know, how we as actual managers are running our business. So, you know, we're now being asked a lot more probing questions around our diversity and inclusion policies uh, as a firm, uh, also our approach to climate uh, as a firm. Um, and I think that again is, is raising the bar on, on how we run our business uh, and how we reflect the values of, of our clients in that. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my take really on, on that. So, so definitely more probing and a more diverse set of issues. So Emma Jane, as an investor, how does a sovereign fund like ISAF prioritize the issues to focus on? Yeah, so maybe the first thing I suppose I'd say is that ISAF has a statutory mandate, you know, to deliver uh, risk adjusted return and economic impact, you know, on behalf of, um, you know, citizens of Ireland effectively managing taxpayers money and um, we must, you know, deliver value for the taxpayer. So that's sort of the the mandate and the parameters in which we we operate. Um, and when ISIP was being established uh, by statute in, in sort of late 2014, we're, we're coming up on our sixth birthday, um, uh, and we were developing the, the investment strategy, you know, it was very clear to us that to be able to deliver on that mandate that, you know, we had to think in terms of sustainability. And we did already have a history of being a responsible investor um, as the predecessor fund was the National Pensions Reserve Fund of Ireland and was actually one of the founding signatories of the PRI um, back in 20, uh, 2006. So, um, you know, we had this history of responsible investment and we really wanted to ensure that we integrated into this new form of the fund as, as ISIF. Um, and to think about what that means, you know, it's sort of investing today, um, you know, in terms of the needs of today, but, you know, in a manner that's not, um, you know, compromising the needs of future generations. And I suppose our approach to, to responsible investment has always been very broad in that sense, both in terms of the issues we consider and also um, in terms of the way that we that we implement it, be it divestment or integration or active ownership or, or such. However, um, the fund's sustainability and responsible investment policy does actually have to go all the way to the Minister for Finance for approval. Um, and in particular, our uh, exclusion policy. So when that was being established for the fund, it did actually go through many different reams of, of governments right up to sort of uh, ministerial sign off. So I suppose what that's saying is that there is certainly a, a strong need to be aligned with government policy or I suppose direction of, of, um, of, uh, of potential government policy and just sort of sensitivity to, to what is important uh, to government. And, um, you know, I think our recent areas of focus would very much reflect that. Um, our, our policy is very much focused on some of the issues that Charlie has, has raised there already in terms of climate change um, is, a, is a key issue, both in terms of, you know, understanding the risks that that poses to our portfolio, but also the investment opportunities. And how can a fund like ours invest in a manner that is supporting Ireland, um, you know, meet its climate contributions or, or, or um, commitments. Um, and also, of course, over the last few years, we would have seen a significant em emphasis on fossil fuel divestment. Um, you know, we're, we're subject to the Fossil Fuel Divestment Act and have um, excluded a significant number of those types of companies from our, from our portfolio. Um, and then more recently, uh, well, we've always had a very strong, um, I suppose, focus on 
best in class governance and ensuring that sort of applies across all our investments and I suppose translating some of our learnings from global investing into the Irish market, but particularly, um, you know, trying to address gender diversity, uh, which is, you know, poor across the market generally, I suppose, but, um, you know, trying to trying to address that across our, our uh, Irish investments as well. So there may be some of the, the key themes, you know, really climate change, particularly fossil fuels and um, gender diversity. They're sort of some of our key priority issues at the moment. But what I would say is that on a you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, on a transaction by transaction basis, you know, we really do look at a wide range of issues and focus on, um, you know, those that are material to the, the types of, of companies and sectors that we're investing in. So I wouldn't narrow it to those. No, and I think what we're hearing is an, a, an increasing diversification in terms of the issues, both from what Charlie has said and you. And, and I think we probably then come back to the output of our poll, so, you know, as, as you look at those issues that you're going to focus on, you need to have access to the right information. So, Fong Yi, do investors have the tools to incorporate ESG into the investment portfolios across a variety of asset classes? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think it's kind of, it's great to hear Charlie and, and Emma Jane kind of reflect upon, you know, their, their journey and their thinking around this. Um, just taking a step back around, you know, FTSE Russell, you know, we've been working in sustainable investment since 2001. Um, we're well known as an index provider, um, but as many of you appreciate, you know, what goes in indexes? Data. Um, and so not only do we bring in third-party data, we also uh, build our own data to incorporate indexes. So I have to say, like, we are, we appreciate, you know, how important it is to have the, the right tools fit for purpose. And when I say the right tools, um, I mean, there's, there's an element of, you know, is there coverage? You know, do you have data on the universe, sovereigns or companies that you're trying to um, research and incorporate into your portfolios? Um, but as well as, is that data comparable? Is it good quality? Um, and, and I want to kind of elaborate that on that a bit more, um, but just taking one step back, we've also seen a lot of the methodologies around how do you bring in ESG evolve over the years. Emma Jane um, and Charlie mentioned exclusions. You know, that's a commonly used way now to remove areas that companies don't want, sorry, investors don't want to be exposed to controversial conduct, uh, controversial weapons, uh, fossil fuels, um, or even um, scenarios like tobacco and gambling and so forth. Um, so, but the the way of doing, doing incorporating has moved beyond looking at exclusions, also looking at how can you score companies using good data and then underweighting or overweighting which means rewarding penalizing companies based on those characteristics. Um, and to your point around like multi-asset classes, I mean, a lot of the origins of integration happened in active equity. Um, it's moving obviously into passive equity as data gets better, um, but then as well as into the sovereign side of things. You know, we're getting, we're also able to get data from the World Bank, also able to use smart estimation models to then um, extrapolate characteristics of countries to build incorporate into a fixed income sovereign portfolio. Um, infrastructure, real estate, these are areas where historically there's been poor disclosure. Um, now there are again uh, um, frameworks to, uh, to encourage uh, portfolio companies uh, to provide better um, disclosure around portfolios, but as well as again uh, smarter ways of understanding how to use other characteristics of buildings to aggregate and estimate energy usage, carbon emissions um, of portfolios. Um, around the data side, it, it's, it's something that we, we grapple with day to day. It's hard and partial of what we do. 
Um, and I think the good news is that, you know, as you mentioned, Tara, there's been a number of policy and regulatory um, uh, developments recently um, that are going to require companies to add an additional layer of legal obligation to report information that allows investors to, ex to um, extract systematically you know, areas that, are, um, that can help them understand the sustainability characteristics. And also there are a number of frameworks with GRI, SASB, um, and also London Stock Exchange, we provided guidance on companies on what information to disclose and why that is relevant for investors. So there are a number of things that are moving in that direction to help us get information. But the reality is that there will be some areas where data will be lacking. Um, and um, again, you know, historically, there's been a lot of work done around carbon models. Um, and we see this being um, also uh, used, modeling, intelligent modeling being used in other areas, such as, for example, estimating how much of a company's revenues are coming from the green economy. And so we're getting smarter about how to use proxies to um, fill in some of those data gaps um, and help us make some intelligent guesses. So to, to your question on data, I think data remains a challenge. You know, it, it probably will be for a very long time, um, but we're getting a, a much smarter about it and not using it as a way of stopping the integration of ESG into portfolios. I'm kind of hearing almost a, a, a dichotomy of loads of data, but not necessarily the right data. So uh, Emma Jane, you know, as an investor and, and taking in some of this data and then also dealing with certain shortfalls, how do you manage that in your portfolio? Yeah, so we have always taken um, a whole of portfolio approach to our um, sustainability and responsible investment uh, strategy and implementation. But I suppose a challenge um, that that poses for our fund is that, you know, we, we make this sort of holistic commitment to to be responsible investors and to integrate ESG, but we operate two very different portfolios. So one is a global portfolio invested in listed markets in, um, you know, listed equity and, um, and bond portfolios, you know, across global listed markets. And the other is, you know, a domestic Irish um, private equity, private debt, predominantly type, um, type investments. And, uh, you know, that there are massive data differentials between these, these two types of portfolios. So on the global side, um, you know, if you think of our journey as a responsible investor for more than 10 years ago, when there was barely any data and, you know, we were members of CDP and we were um, really sort of promoting uh, listed companies to disclose this type of information to investors. So now, as, as Wang Yi has described, you know, there's really a range, wide range of data. For the first time in the last couple of years, you know, we have information across our global portfolio on, you know, carbon emissions. Um, we look at the types of things that Fungi mentioned, like um, exposure to potentially controversial uh, sectors, we, we can very easily screen for compliance with our exclusion list, such as you know, tobacco, cluster munitions. Um, we can slice and dice fossil fuel exposure to really see where the highest carbon contribution uh, our contributing companies are, you know, and how that fits with our high carbon strategy. We can um, we screen periodically to be aligned with the Fossil Fuel Divestment Act to ensure that we have continued compliance. And we've done our, we've just completed our fifth tranche of divestment uh, on that basis. Um, you know, so we have great information and we, um, but 
but but for us on as as investors on the global side we're primarily uh, using third party managers so we're not using that information to do to make buy and sell decisions we're using that information to get a i suppose a holistic um assessment and understanding of where the risks lie in our portfolio how the portfolio as a whole fits with our long-term um investment strategies um we recently um have done our sort of first type of scenario analysis across our global portfolio where we're able to assess how um the portfolio is positioned you know for a for a two degree or less than two degree um uh scenario as per the the the, Par uh, the paris agreement so we now have you know we can assess transition risks we can assess physical risks so we have this sort of great data bank and the challenge is really how to use it um, we, another thing we look at is, you know, alignment with the SDGs um, and really it's sort of taking this information and making sure that it's not just, you know, data for the sake of data, that it feeds back into our um, you know, to our engagement program to ensure that the types of risks that are that are identified are, are certainly being been addressed through our active ownership and engagement program. And particularly, I think, in respect of the scenario analysis and the climate work that we've done over the last year, you know, we're looking at how we can feed that into the development of our of our global portfolio and ensuring its continued alignment or its improved alignment, I should say. Um, uh, in terms of, of kind of longer term climate objectives. So that's on the global side, but then on the Irish side, it's a bit like stepping back in time. It's a bit like going back to when we first started looking at, um, uh, you know, responsible investment um, because there are no, you know, indices um, there is no great bank of ESG data for the Irish market. We rely very much on um, sort of broad market indices to sort of assess what the risks are. Fong Yi mentioned SASB, um, which is sort of integrated into our uh, ESG framework in terms of assessing um, potential risks. So we take, I suppose, a much more, you know, in the Irish portfolio, we are making the buy and sell decisions and we are doing the, the ESG risk assessment and we're doing it from a much more bottom up basis. Um, uh, and at present, we do rely a lot on on the likes of the sort of the SASB framework, so to, to direct that type of due diligence, um, and are building up our our data bank as we go. We also do a significant amount of modelling um, in terms of assessing the carbon and climate risk across the Irish portfolio, because you know so far, certainly across the the, the different sectors that we invest in, we invest. Um, you know, we're a direct equity investor. We're an indirect equity investor. We're in debt funds. We provide um, equity into debt funds and all of these have different data modeling challenges i'm sure some of the um you know charlie and you will, will uh, understand the pain of this in terms of trying to do accurate carbon and climate analysis um you know there's so many different you know the guidance is ever evolving so the challenge is really um you know taking this data bank uh, uh modeling it and making sure that it's useful for um for investments for investors um but I think the Irish data has a lot, a lot more to go, I think, in terms of, um, you know, a, a sort of a strong bank of data and, you know, good comparability across sectors. Um, you know, so, so this is obviously clearly coming down the lines. So, so different challenges on, from all the classes, but also from different geographies. So, Charlie, from your perspective, then um, emerging markets must be an even further challenge. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think we're definitely 
beyond even the Irish uh, on the on the spectrum here, we're we're um, we're definitely fighting a kind of an uphill battle. Um, but I mean, I think you know when we take a step back, I mean, fundamentally, you know, the quality of a company's disclosure is is what drives the market's perception around its ESG practices, and you know that is why you know all of us here on the panel will agree that you know we're all we all want to see. Uh, improvements in standards there, and you know, I think in, in emerging markets, you know, frankly, the standards are just uh, are that much lower. You know, we are still behind uh, the developed world in terms of you know the expectations, the standard settings, the regulation. Um, I mean, I'd say there is some catch up happening, but it's still you know the challenges there uh, remain. I mean, we did a bit of analysis um, about a year or so ago, and we looked through all of the kind of the companies that we invest in, and only around a half of them had any form of sustainability report. I mean, and, and that was often you know a sort of CSR sort of box ticking type report. It really wasn't a fundamental uh, disclosure um, uh, document, and that compares to sort of eighty percent plus in the S and P. Uh, 500 um, and even higher in Europe. So you know we're we're fighting uh, against a lot of blanks effectively. Um, but I think that's really why we have adapted uh, adopted our own sort of unique approach, I suppose, to this. Um, I think it also you know Fong Yi will will I'm sure um, uh, agree. But it, you know it makes the the third party ratings very very difficult um, and third parties are tracking of of, of this. Uh, data very uh, difficult when you've got so many blanks to you know to, to fill in and estimate and model all the rest of it um, and so by and large we uh, we we don't lean too much on those third-party providers um, I would say one area where we do and and um, Emma Jane talked about this as well but is on the climate side there's a lot of uh, very kind of interesting tools that are coming out that are helping us to sort of visualize the the climate risk in our portfolio it's very difficult to do that you know in a proprietary way there's a lot of IP out there that um, that, that is best sort of licensed. Um, but for the most part, we effectively get our boots on the ground uh, and we have a team of 17 analysts. We have a universe of around 200 companies that we, we actively look at and only about 80 holdings at any one time. So we have a very broad team covering a very narrow kind of uh, set of stocks, which gives us the bandwidth to really dive deep. Um, so that's really what our responsibility is day to day is to go out and really you know get boots on the ground um, and, and, and to pull out that data uh, from companies uh, directly. Uh, and we built our own assessment frameworks to help us sort of systematize that and, and structure it. And actually, again, SASB has been mentioned twice already. We also uh, use SASB as a sort of the foundation stone for, for that uh, assessment. And again, that has important implications for when it comes to us going to companies and asking for uh, sort of disclosure standards to improve. We're all coming from, you know, a, a relatively uh, consistent me uh, message there. We're not asking for, for lots of different things. Um, so I think, again, one other important point I would make is that engagement here is really important. I mean, Jane mentioned this as well, but I think that, you know, all investors uh, have a role to play in, in pushing companies to disclose more um, and, and, and for more meaningful material ESG disclosure. Um, and we do a lot of work on that front. Uh, in fact, and again, I think what's interesting about that is that in that process, you uncover a lot of information that the market is, is sort of unaware of because it's not being disclosed. Um, so we had a, uh, an online workshop last week, actually, with the executive team of one of the, an Indian packaged food company that we invest in. Um, and we set out these material issues that we felt the company should be addressing and, and reporting transparently on. And in that process, 
in that sort of dialogue, it turned out that, you know, there was a whole range of activities that were going on around these issues that just they had not got round to disclosing. Um, and I think that's what we encounter a lot of. There's a lot more activity beneath the surface. But, you know, if, if, if you draw the line at, at what is publicly disclosed and leave it at that, then you're going to be leaving, you're missing a lot of, of important information that's out there. Um, and that that's, you know, ignoring, and there's a whole other conversation around verifying data that is disclosed as well that I, you know, we won't go down now. But, um, you know, I think the point to say here is that, Disclosure standards are, you know, is improving, uh, but there's still a long way to go. And from our experience, at least in emerging markets, there's there's no yet substitute yet for you know good old-fashioned elbow grease and and you know getting out there and, and having these conversations with companies directly. Well, I think we're we're seeing the, the the EU certainly trying to drive differentiators in terms of those standards and improve that um, and, and drive that from a policy perspective and have established their own classification system. Fong Yi, what tools are available for investors to make sense of this green taxonomy? Yeah, um, I think I think um, one thing to just make sure we're on the common like level setting here is like what is the green taxonomy? You know, it, it's a way of uh, for investors to understand what are the criteria for understanding what is the green activity, and its application can be helping investors understand what is the exposure to the green economy, but as well as helping companies understand what part of their business how much of the revenues are coming from the green economy. Um, so you know, it's great to have this classification. It's great because to your point, um, Tara, it helps to improve uh, flows of capital into the green economy. Um, but as well, you know, we've been talking about this kind of gray uh, philosophical concept of this low carbon transition. Now we have a common language of understanding what does that exactly mean? Um, but it only works again if you have data, right? It's great to have definitions, but you need to have the data to uh, understand you know, what companies are involved with and how much of their revenues are coming from these segments. Um, in some of our research, um, we found that you know, in a global universe of 16,000 companies, large, mid and small, there's around 3,000 um, that are uh, involved with green activities. Um, and then, it, then it, it comes down to, you know, with those 3,000 companies, can you extract how much precisely of the revenues are coming from the green areas? Um, and, and Charlie, as Charlie said, you know, um, disclosure is improving, um, but it's still lacking it in many places. Um, we don't have the luxury of going in and engaging with all those companies to understand what the green revenues are. Um, but what we can do is uh, we know that less than 30% of companies of those 3,000 are disclosing information in a granular enough way that allows to systematically extract and understand what those revenues are. Um, for the rest of the company, what we can do is know what kind of characteristics can help us derive what great revenues are. So for example, if you have a um, vehicle producer and we know how many electric vehicles they produce and what the total revenues are, we can then make a smart estimate around what are the green revenues. And that type of estimation, that rigorous estimation you can start to develop models and smart ways of doing that for different sectors, for different companies, depending on what information they do disclose, and then start filling some of those information gaps. Um, so the, the, the long and short of it is that, you know, it's important to have the data set to help us understand what's, what's going into the green economy. And again, you know, we'll get a bit smarter about filling in those gaps using smart estimation. Very good, thank you. I'm conscious we're, we're coming close to the end of our time, so maybe we might just look at a couple of audience questions. I think in, in the time that, the, that it is, um, you know, one of the questions we've been asked is, are you seeing a COVID impact on ESG issues? Emma Jane, are you seeing anything there? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, we started this year so incredibly busy on the ESG and sustainability side. Our sustainability responsible investment policy was signed off. The NTMA um, sort of as an interim climate strategy, which was agreed. Our ISIF climate uh, investment strategy was sort of raring to go. And, you know, it really looked like it was going to be a year entirely focused on ESG and, and, and climate. Um, and obviously things changed very abruptly for us, um, you know, in, in the middle of March in, in Ireland anyway. Um, and I think there was definitely a period of time, uh, you know, during the, the immediate kind of crisis where the conversation certainly shift from long-term sustainability to sort of short-term viability. Um, and ISAF has certainly been a part of that uh, conversation. In fact, we had a, a significant um, uh, mandate, you know, an unexpected and uh, starting the year um, mandate change to uh, redirect sort of two billion of capital to um, the PSRF, the Pandemic Stabilization and Recovery Fund, you know, as part of government's response to support um, uh, companies that are, uh, you know, being impacted by COVID. So, you know, but what I will say is that through that, um, you know, the development of that fund and the strategy and the governance and everything that has been happening since since it was established around, around Easter time, um, you know, that sustainability and responsible investment is embedded in that and remains a, you know, a key, a key consideration. Um, if anything, I would say, you know, while there was a kind of, I think, a momentary, I know a lot of people in the sustainability sector sort of took a, a deep breath um, because, uh, but actually what we've seen is an absolute sort of re-emphasis, I think, on the importance of ESG. You know, we have, um, we've, we've seen particularly, I would say, on the S of ESG, you know, ESG is so intertwined, you can't really simplify it into these, you know, three simple categories, but, um, you know, um, while there's been, I suppose, a greater appreciation of perhaps our environment, of biodiversity, of the potential impact that climate change could have, in some ways what you're seeing is, uh, you know, the way that the virus has, um, you know, I suppose brought government citizens, um, you know, working together to to address a, a common goal, which is our public health. You know, in some ways, it presents a, a model for how we could tackle climate. Um, but at the same point, uh, you know, what we're also seeing is uh, the social inequities that have been highlighted by it. Um, you know, across the globe, you're seeing a, a COVID impact. Um, you know, in different ways, whether you're in, in an area of privilege or, or, or not so privileged. Um, we're also seeing it's throwing up issues like the digital divide. You know, we're here, we're working from home today. You know, I'm in my box room um, and we've made a very uh, seamless transition um, to be able to continue to work um, full time. Um, and that's just simply not the case for so many other people. Um, so, you know, this sort of inequity of impact is very visible all around us. We've also reassessed, um, you know, our essential services and, and those people that we, how we value them and, um, you know, provide such such critical um, services to our, to, you know, across our economy. Um, so like to me, I think if anything, this has given 
impetus to ESG and strengthened its case and the importance to consider um, particularly, I think, social issues. Um, you know, another interesting element that we're seeing is uh, after five years of sort of progression in terms of gender diversity, there's been the first year of a bit of a, 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 a you know, a slump a direct, uh, going the other direction, which is again a direct impact of, uh, of COVID and, and how it is impacting um, genders dif differently in the workplace. So, uh, and then on the other hand, we're also seeing a model where we're all I think the scientists have had their day and uh, we're all listening to you know we know the immunologists and the virologists by name now we're listening to science and you know we again coming back to this idea that we have a model for that now for climate change we're listening to climate scientists and how we're going to to think about our future so um so a lot to think about as we move a lot <laughs> yeah lockdown at least some positives to take from that um, so thank you very much. I was told when we started prepping for this section that actually any of these topics could probably take up the entire session. And unfortunately, we have run out of time. Um, but I think what we, we could certainly take from this is that discussions on approach and challenges of ESG will continue as the prevailing winds drive us more into ESG investing. So I'd like to thank my panel uh, for your insights and to the audience for your participation. And we'll close the session there.